Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Black Doctors podcast. I am Dr. Stephen Bradley, your host. And this week's episode is jumping back into the realm of medical ethics. Once a month, I want to do an episode focused on medical ethics, especially considering that when it comes to healthcare disparities, you know, some of that ties directly into the ethics of practicing medicine. And I think, you know, approaching from this perspective can help the care that's ultimately provided to our patients. So this episode, I'm going to tell a couple of personal stories, things that I experienced along the way, because the way I've practiced medicine, I've experienced being obviously a medical student, being a resident physician, practicing in the military, which is, you know, there's levels to the hierarchy, uh, even more so than just the doctor, physician, nurse relationship. There's actually military rank and structure. I guess I should start with the topic of today's episode is saying no in healthcare, saying no in medicine. When is it okay to say no? How do you say no and refuse different things? This is going beyond the, you know, medically non-indicated care. There's so many times where in the healthcare systems within which we work, there's going to be times where hospital administrators or your boss is going to be pressuring you to do things. There's times in your academic medical department where you're feeling pressure to do things. There's times as a medical student or resident along the way, there's going to be times where you need to say no and you kind of have to figure out along the way, when do I say no? When do I turn down this opportunity? When do I refuse because this is morally wrong or clinically inappropriate or not warranted? So I am going to talk about that today. One of the things that that kind of spurred this is the recent uh, nursing strike in New York City. If you've been following the news, I think it was last week or the week before, there was some nurses at a couple of different hospitals in New York that went forward with the strike to improve kind of the working conditions, the patient staffing ratios. And there's all always multiple sides to a story, but ultimately, from what I, I recall reading, they were really focused on putting some safeguards in place that ultimately would improve patient care because it would protect the nursing staff from being overwhelmed and being assigned to many patients. And there's so many levels to that story about how the healthcare systems try to cut costs and that directly leads to healthcare workers, nurses, physicians, allied health professionals taking on uh, excess burden and these hospital systems prey on our beneficence because obviously we went to healthcare to help people and they save costs. They increase their profit margin at the expense of our mental health and well-being and also the patient's health. So the point of today's episode, we're going to talk about how and when to say no. I always like to start by talking about the spheres of influence. I talk about this often in the ICU and working with residents or medical students because it's so easy to be frustrated about things that are beyond our control. So I start by, you know, I can't remember which book I it came out of, but there's different spheres. You can draw yourself as a person, right? And that first sphere, if you draw a circle around your little self as a stick figure, are the things that are under your direct control, things that you can affect a change in, things you control. So you can control as a medical student, you know, how thorough your presentations are, how much time to some extent you spend with patients. You can control... Um, sometimes some of the interactions that you have with your residents and attendings as a resident, you have some control. Maybe when when can you send that medical student home as an attending physician? You control a lot, right? You control interactions between you and residents. You control a lot of the um, clinical stuff. You you control what modalities a patient does or doesn't receive. You're kind of navigating within the evidence based medicine structure, and you have a lot of control. You have the sphere of control immediately around you, the things you can touch and the things that you can affect change. If you draw another circle around that circle, so we're in circle number two here, if you're keeping track, you have the things you can influence. 
So as a medical student, you can influence your fellow classmates, you can influence your residents. So this specifically, if I'm going to share some stories, when I'm rounding and the team, you know, for a black patient, somebody made um, an off-color remark. It wasn't um, blatantly racist, but it was kind of that that subtle racist, right? Because racism doesn't usually like people aren't just dropping in words with regards to patient care. But as we know, racism presents in a more subtle fashion with just bias. And I think somebody said something in the middle of rounds. I was probably like more around the senior side of residency. And I said very bluntly, like, oh, well, that's a little racist. And the team kind of stopped. Then the person immediately apologized and like we continued on. That happened, you know, after a couple of years in residency where I felt more comfortable, where I felt empowered to be able to speak that truth to power. But as a resident, I'm able to influence my peers in that situation, as well as, you know, the attending, everybody was there because that comment that was made was in front of everybody. So I made my comment in front of everybody. As medical students, when you're seeing patients and you have your classmates that begin to show their biases, you can have an influence on that. Same as with your attendings. Um, If your attendings are practicing the old school way, you know, less culturally competent care, and you catch that, there's ways, you know, if you feel comfortable, if you feel empowered, that you can start to exert some influence. If you see patients aren't being treated up to, you know, the the level of care that you would desire, maybe not the most current up-to-date evidence-based medicine, you have some influence and you can um, affect the, the care that the patient receives. The third circle would be the things that are kind of outside of our control. So things on the hospital system level, things that you just can't really make changes. So I see that as, you know, when I was in residency, we had, uh, we rounded in the cardiothoracic ICU. Our CTICU census did not cap. We had, um, you know, anywhere from like 12 patients to 24 patients typically. And we would cover the ICU solo coverage as, you know, PGY, I think two on through the end of residency. If you're on call 24 hours, you'd be on call with however many patients are in the ICU. So the number of patients, you know, sometimes, you know, when you have 24 cardiothoracic ICU patients, it could be very challenging, very complex. And you wonder, you know, am I delivering the best care possible to this patient? Or am I just trying to keep everybody alive through the night? And the staffing in the ICU is pretty far out of your level of control as a lowly resident. But through the system, through your program director, through other people, you can discuss your concerns, especially when you center them around patient care. And now you're kind of in that realm of influence. And it may take a while because things do take a while in medicine. But after a couple of years, you may start to see some progress where maybe they'll staff an additional resident or they'll provide a um, nurse practitioner or physician assistant to kind of help offload some of that. So that's kind of a, a small example of something that in, in the moment can feel very much outside of your spheres of control and influence. But if you go through the right channels, sometimes you can um, have an effect there. For the nursing staff in New York, obviously they had unsafe patient ratios. They wanted to do something about it. It was pretty far on the far reaching outskirts of their sphere of influence, but together as a union, they're able to come together and advocate for that. And that brought them together as a group and brought that um, objective into their sphere of influence. So that's one of the first things, you know, and, and I don't waste my time, like, you know, as a, as a resident or as a fellow now or as an attending, if I see something is outside my sphere of influence, then I think about, you know, how big of a change do I want to make? Is it within my values judgment? How long of a time commitment would it take to make these changes? 
am I staying at this institution for the next two to three years? How much of a risk is this to uh, patient safety? Is the juice worth the squeeze essentially for um, me being the change that is needed and being the catalyst to affect change and go through the proper channels? So for me, I like to only focus on things that I can put forth energy to actually change. And if I can't change it, I'm either going to think about how I can or just work within the systemic constraints. So I thought that's relevant to kind of look at that power dynamic, look at the sphere of influence, because it kind of helps put everything into perspective of how much change you can expect or or or, or try to make. A couple things, you know, is to to note. So when should you say no in medicine? There's a couple different situations that I'll share. Number one, um, you should say no when there's a patient safety concern. So we see this so often, uh, beating the horse to the ground, but obviously in New York, there's a patient safety concern with that. One of the situations that came up with me, because again, I worked in the private sector, I worked in the military, where there is um, you know, rank as well as um, clinical judgment. A couple years ago, it's probably, actually, I guess about a year ago now, I was working in my hospital in Virginia and it, we had like a snowstorm for uh, two days. It doesn't usually snow there, but it dropped below freezing. It snowed, um, pipes froze in a hospital, really old pipes in the hospital that I was working at and the pipes ended up bursting. They were repaired, but there was like kind of rusty shards of pipe that shredded the water filters. Now the water filters fed into the sterile equipment processing. Right, So in the operating room, you have a ton of sterile equipment, your scalpel, blade holders, your Alice clamps, all the different surgical instruments. We even you know, sterilize some of the implant, implantable devices that patients will receive. So that stuff gets washed, it goes into like autoclave and gets processed so it's sterile. Well, after this snowstorm, the filters got shredded. And so now there was dirty water that was kind of getting into the system and it was contaminating the surgical equipment. Unfortunately, of course, that took uh, you know a little bit of you know a couple of days to figure out like oh my god, this stuff is dirty and it's not really passing um, the the surgical checks. So once they figured it out, they're like okay, we got to stop doing this. We got to find a workaround for this. So the solution was to take all the surgical equipment. It would be dirty. Um, we'll take it to a nearby Air Force base hospital and we can process it all there and then bring it back to our hospital. So that was going on and we had these, so the military works as like young medics, essentially. These folks are usually like right out of boot camp, 18, 19, 20 year old kids that are responsible, big responsibility to sterilize and process all of this gear, the surgical gear that's being, you know, used to operate on patients, the gear that's being implanted. And these poor kids, they had to like finish up their day of work and then package up all the surgical equipment, take it to the next hospital, get it sterilized, then bring it back. Well, this was going on and... Um, eventually, like as time went on, we started to have an increase in the number of surgical site infections that we were seeing in the hospital. And uh, some of these were, were getting pretty bad. They'd be opening sets before cases, and then they'd find, you know, multiple sets were contaminated to the point that we would have to start canceling cases as well. So this is about a month later when stuff was just like going super slowly. And, and you know, I'm always patient focused. I was actually kind of doing the patient safety reporting system for the anesthesia department at the time. And I would go through and talk with all the different surgical services. So next thing, you know, I talked to the ENT surgeons and they're having surgical site infections on their thyroidectomy patients. 
and the neurosurgeons are having some surgical site infections. Um, the neurosurgeons are very, very particular, obviously, about not using dirty gear. If there's any concern, you know, they open up these sterile equipment trays and they inspect everything. And they were very fastidious about saying, no, this is unacceptable. Different sur surgical services were having these different wound infections. The obstetricians and gynecologists had, uh, you know, I think they had within a one month time period, three or four really bad uh, cesarean or C-section infections. One so bad that like, the patient actually had to have emergency surgery and ended up with a hysterectomy. And you know, trying to be vague about the time frame, and I did not take care of that patient, so I, I do try to really respect um, the boundaries of HIPAA. So I tried to change some details and um, made this as non-specific as possible. But yes, that is how bad some of these surgical site infections were. So I went through the proper channels, and I'm talking to the folks that that I interface with. Like, hey, it seems like we should probably stop these surgeries for a while until we fix this problem. And obviously, like the bigger picture is from a hospital perspective. The Navy hospitals have to like justify like we have so many staff here because we're doing all these cases and we're not deferring cases out to the civilian network. So as the the um, commanding officer of the hospital, you have a lot kind of riding on you to show appropriate utilization, all those things. So there's a lot of dynamics, obviously. But my concern, first and foremost, is to the patient, um, not to the metrics of the hospital. So I talked to my leadership, I think a couple of times, two or three times, different people in my immediate chain of commands and, hey, like, what are we doing about this? Should we stop this? Are the surgical site infection rates higher than normal? And I kept getting told, like, oh, no, these are the same numbers, the same numbers. I'm like, well, can we compare the numbers? Where, where, where are we? So there's a lot of, like, just back and forth. So taking this back, again, I talked about the sphere of influence. The things that happened to me directly in my control, if there was any concern, I think once or twice they were opening sets, and I was like, I am not going to take this patient back. I'm not going to induce anesthesia until we know that there is a, um, a clean tray that everybody's looked at, approved, like we can operate with this uh, equipment. So that was my immediate sphere of, not even influence, uh, sphere, sphere of control. And I was an attending physician, right? So if I was a resident, that would be a very different sphere of control. But as an attending, I said, hey, I'm not starting this case until I know. You can ding me for the delayed um, OR time, whatever. But usually the surgeons were also like on board with my my judgment, right? They're operating and they want to use clean stuff too. Now, outside of my um, control was the sphere of influence. I tried going through the proper channels to kind of exert some influence on, hey, we should probably like slow down the operation tempo. We were coming off of the COVID pandemic where we had a backlog of cases. So there was a production pressure to continue to knock out these cases. So my sphere of influence was like, hey, leadership, we should probably slow down because I don't think this is right. We've got kids like driving two hours to move this gear um, back and forth. We don't know that it's coming as clean uh, when it comes back. There's just a lot of uh, things that could go wrong. The stakes are very high. We should slow this down. Well, I was told that the numbers were the same and that there was um, no increased rate of infection. I'm like, well, I don't know. Last year, like I hadn't heard of, you know, infections like, like this. So the, this was outside of my sphere of influence. It was outside of my control. So there's always, you know, people always have a boss. There's always things. So so the only thing I could do, I actually talked to one of my buddies from residency who is a lawyer. Um, he's a anesthesiologist, also a lawyer. And I'm like, dude, what can I do in the situation? I want to go to the news. I actually did talk to a reporter, but that didn't go anywhere. Um, and he was just like, hey, you got to be careful. You're going to be out in a couple months. So let's, um, and you don't have any proof. He was big on, you know, from that lawyer perspective, like you don't have proof that the numbers are higher. 
you don't know anything about um, sterile surgical processing. Yeah, you know, came with the facts. I'm like, dude, you're right. Um, I I don't have you know indisputable evidence of the things that I'm pretty sure are going on, but I would need that if I were to be more aggressive. So I didn't say anything much. It was like I tried to like anonymously report it. Ultimately, what ended up happening because in charge of every hospital is a joint commission. They come in and they expect the surgical equipment. So I ended up putting in, I think, three anonymous complaints to the joint commission that these things were happening. Uh, People were being pressured to high production pressure, not quite, you know, or wait for sterile equipment, proceed with questionable equipment, and patients were being injured and there was infections that were happening. So of course the joint commission, you know, they're breathing down their necks. Everybody like when they come to do an inspection inspection in the hospital, then everybody scatters and everybody is, you know, wearing gloves and, and doing all the right things. But for whatever reason, not surprising, when there's anonymous complaints, it's still, you know, they didn't repair for like three or four months down the road. Eventually everything had been fixed. The uh, water system got fixed. The sterile processing equipment got fixed. So we were kind of all back up to normal by the time we had the Joint Commission stop by and the hospital passed again. So that is an example caused a lot of moral distress for me because I, I fundamentally thought, I was like, we are doing the, the wrong thing for these patients. We, I need to protect their safety. I, I need to protect these patients. Um, and they were having bad outcomes. But what can I do? I tried speaking truth to power. It didn't go anywhere. But I reached out, talked to a lawyer, I talked to, um, and, and I reported, you know, to the best of my ability and and did everything, exhausted all the resources that I had to affect change. So, you know, you're not always going to be able to see that change immediately, but I slept better at night knowing that I had done the things that I did. So when patient safety is at stake, you should escalate things as appropriate. It's okay to say no. Um, the next thing uh, when you should say no, this is probably more applicable is uh, for your mental health. As you go through residency, especially once you become an attending, you have all this free time, you're going to start having people ping you in different directions. Um, they want you to bring in, you know, do lectures. They want you to take on other clinical responsibilities. And, you know, just keep in mind your mental health, keep in mind your time and how it's spent and how you're compensated for your time. Think about your family. You know, you worked really hard to become an attending and it's time now to enjoy that and enjoy that lifestyle. So I came out of residency, I became an attending, I was an assistant professor at the Uniform Services University of Health Science, and I jumped directly into resident education. So I was doing a lot of lectures. I was lecturing probably like once or twice a month, and that meant I had to build all these lectures. And with the military, I did not have quote-unquote protected time. We weren't very clinically um, busy, but there's all these other like side tasks that you have to do with the military. Like every year you have to do like harassment training. You have to do like a firearm training. There's um, mental health awareness training modules. These are like 30 to 50 minute modules that you have to do. There's all these things that take up your time. And on top of my work schedule, I was very, very active in resident education because it's something I'm very passionate about. And... After about a year and a half, two years of that, that's when I had to step back and say, wait a minute, you know, I don't have any protected time because you come out, you're looking for jobs, right? And you don't, you may underestimate that the significance of protected time, whether it's like an 80-20 deal or 90-10, uh, but especially if you're engaged in academics or if you're engaged in department leadership, then you need to negotiate for that protected time. And even more so, you need to make sure that you actually receive that protected time to do those extracurricular activities in addition to your clinical job. So towards the end, you know, my, my last like year or two years, I kind of took a, a, 
a step back, did not get involved as much in the resident clinical education, made a conscious decision that, okay, I'm going to lecture every two months. I'll still work with them on mock oral boards, but I have to reclaim some of my time. Eventually, I use that as leverage to say, hey, I want to lecture these residents, but I don't have protected time to build the lectures. That's part of my job. So if I get some protected time, then I can lecture. If not, then I cannot. And ultimately, you know, just knowing that I was able to advocate for myself, I was able to, and, and saying no gave me the leverage to negotiate for protected time. So I was slightly less clinical, so I could engage in that this educational pursuit. So again, they're going to do the same thing with different committees. And very quickly, you'll find yourself in attending that you're going to work, and then you're going to take work home with you. And that is not the goal. The goal is you should be doing all this work when you're in the hospital, on the job, and it can be very difficult sometimes to learn how to say no and say no to your boss or the hospital administrators. There's a book I read, um, Essentialism, it was the name of the book, and it starts off by talking about saying no and how in the beginning when you start to say no, you're going to feel like you're letting people down, people are going to look at you like you're quote-unquote not a team player. But a funny thing happens, and I, and I witnessed this personally when I started to say no, as you say no to things, you leave time to just take on the projects and tasks that you want to be involved with. That leads you to have the time to do really good work in those areas. And you're also interested in those tasks. And as a result, you start to have just so much more productivity and good outcomes with the work that you do choose to do. People start to realize that and people start to respect you and respect the fact that you do set aside, you know, say no to things that you're not interested in but say yes to things that you are. And uh, I, I didn't. I thought I was skeptical at first, but I tried it and I, I must say that it does work. So as you're starting out, you know, say no. Set a limit to how much extracurricular stuff you're going to do. You can extrapolate this down the line to residency, to medical school. Look at what's going to be best for your CV as your goal is to get into residency if you're a medical student. And if it doesn't directly tie into that goal of, um, improving your CV to help you get that residency spot, then maybe say no. Same thing as a resident. You know, you can't be on every committee in the hospital. You're not really getting paid to do that. So look ahead to your career and say, okay, well, I'm interested in patient safety or I'm interested in medical ethics. And then maybe get on those two committees and er everything else. You know, people are going to come to you because you're capable, but say, no, this doesn't really, it's not something I'm interested in or a direction that I want my career to go. And it's not appropriate for this time. So that's the second you know, off the top of my head, one of the you know second reasons to say no and speak that truth to power. So first, we talked about patient safety and then mental health. You got to protect your mental. And then the the easier answers are when you begin to violate, you know, any of the typical tenets or principles of medical ethics. So patient autonomy, if you're not providing beneficence or there's a risk for non-maleficence or a lack of justice, those kind of, you know, go without saying. But it's, it's crazy how these situations will slip up on you, right? Nobody comes into work expecting to be confronted with an ethical dilemma. I think back to a story. This happened in September of uh, September-ish of 2020. Uh, hospital CEO resigns after making incision during surgery. And, you know, outside of the military, there's power dynamics everywhere. So we had a rank structure in the military, but in your hospital, you have chief medical officers, you have chairs of surgery, you have CEOs. And... In this hospital, the CEO, this is this happened in Tennessee, 
The CEO goes to the OR with, I believe, a cardiac surgeon. This is a direct quote from him. Recently, at the invitation of a surgeon, I entered an operating room to observe a surgical case and to support our surgical team, right? So good intentions, as many health system and hospital CEOs do throughout the nation. You've probably seen this in your hospital, right? You see the CEOs, you see the suits, they want to rub elbows with the clinicians, you know, show that they're a team player, they're boots on the ground, rah, rah. So there he is, he's in the operating room doing, you know, fighting the good fight, being a good hospital CEO. As the case began, the surgeon asked if I would like to make the initial incision for this surgical procedure. We got a surgeon who wants to gain favor of his boss. Surgeon, you know, he's a bro. It's a boys club in the OR. So many, you know, I'm assuming, but so many operating rooms are, are boys clubs. And hey, bro, you want to do this incision? Person says, I regret I did so. He apologized to the patient and their family, as well as the team members of and leadership of this hospital. While there was no harm to the patient, his involvement was a clear violation of their health policy. If the communities that have confidence in their health system, it means everyone, including senior leaders, must be accountable for fulfilling its mission and adhering to the policies intended to protect patients. The, the statement from the health system revealed that a team member had used this health system's compliance process to report the incident, which is fantastic for the incident. So the situation here, and this also speaks to like the necessity of diversity in medicine. When you have a kind of a group think mentality, a boys club, these things are more likely to happen. Whereas you have somebody, maybe a, a woman physician or anesthesiologist or surgical tech, they're like, yo, what are y'all doing? Or somebody that doesn't, you know, is not involved in that group think mentality. Like, cause I don't know, you get a bunch of guys together and we oftentimes do dumb things. Clearly. So having, you know, Diverse opinions helps keep some of that behavior in check, but obviously this happened. So I use this as an example that these these um, pressures are they, they exist in all forms across all hospital systems, military, civilian, um, residency, medical school. You're always going to have these decisions that come out of nowhere, and you have to decide. You know, do I speak truth to power and say no, stop, this shouldn't happen? Or do you stay silent in in the moment? Perhaps this person in the OR was like, well, there's going to be an decision made anyways, and they're not quite abusing the patient, but I'm not going to say anything now, but I'm most certainly going to report this because it should not happen, and I won't stand by let this happen ever again. You know, who knows um, the, the intent? But the point of today's episode and the thing that I've kind of discussed is I wanted to give some real life examples of some ethical dilemmas where you you have to say something or you're inclined to say something and it's not going to feel good. Uh, one of the litmus tests that I always use is if whatever I'm observing right now or involved in is going to keep me awake at night, then I'm going to go ahead and say something. This may or may not stop whatever is occurring but I'll know, you know, I will have assuaged my conscience because I did speak up and at least attempt to speak truth to power. You never know because your boldness and your confidence and you doing the right thing could oftentimes inspire somebody else. And now you've turned the, the tide for the good of those in the room and ultimately for the benefit of the patient. So um, hopefully this episode helps. I would love to hear uh, any feedback you have, any experiences that you may have had um, with speaking truth to power, 
please, if you liked the episode or what you've heard, leave us a review, leave us a ranking as it helps the show to grow and expand and reach more people. Our goal, quite simply, is to support and increase the diversity in our healthcare workforce. And obviously with the ethics episodes, I want to kind of increase our baseline level of medical ethics and improve the care that's being delivered to our patients. This podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Also visit our website, www.theblackdoorspodcast.com. Follow me, uh, Stephen Bradley, MD. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter as well. And always welcome feedback for the show. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Black Dress Podcast. We're here because representation matters.